Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, I'm joined by my friend, a longtime collaborator in various nefarious projects, and now a celebrated Hollywood screenwriter, Andrea Chalupa, whose movie, Mr. Jones, uh, is an absolute must-see and particularly timely and urgent in these dread times of ours, an age of disinformation, fake news, and alternative facts. Mr. Jones, in case you haven't seen it, is about the Ukrainian terror famine, the 1930s, and the um, work of one dogged and enterprising reporter of Welsh nationality to uncover the truth, in spite not only of the Soviet Union's totalitarian mechanisms to hide that truth and to deny that there was a genocide taking place, but also, and here we can get into a lot of fun topics with contemporary relevance, the efforts of the, shall we say, establishment or mainstream press to also take at face value that which a regime was feeding them and to spew propaganda and lies uh, and to also try and deny or discredit the efforts of one essentially freelance or independent journalist to the bottom of things. Uh, Andrea is also the co-host of a very popular podcast, Gaslit Nation, which was all about the dearly departed Trump era. Well, it's about corruption. So the, the podcast is still going. <laughs> still going, but I think it sort of, it came into its own in the dearly departed Trump era. And that, without further introduction, here's Andrea. We've known each other for a long time. I think we became friends over the Ukraine revolution. Yes. Right. Yes. And uh, the attempt to sort of understand what was motivating it. And Andrea's Ukrainian by heritage and was very uh, well keyed in with the diaspora in New York and elsewhere in Canada. And so she was kind of a, an integral um, figure in hooking me up with all sorts of great contacts in Kiev and beyond. Andrea, it's great to have you on the show. And I mean, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I can't also say enough positive things about Mr. Jones. First, let's start with, I mean, this is obviously a project years in the making. And I, I doubt even you had anticipated the state in which we would find ourselves in 2021 with respect to all of the things essentially that was being done in the 1930s, the same kind of intellectual degradation, I suppose, of journalism and just uh, politics. How did you kind of come up with the idea to highlight this historically almost marginal figure in the, in the popular imagination and to turn it into a feature film? I was inspired to do this by my grandfather, Dilonia, who was born and grew up in Donbass, Ukraine, region of Eastern Ukraine that's currently under invasion by Putin. And my grandfather growing up was the world to me. And what was really sort of shocking, being a proud Ukrainian American in this melting pot of our country, was just how, when I would tell people that, oh, my family's from Ukraine, Americans would automatically switch it into their brains. And I said, oh, I'm from Russia. Americans largely did not know the difference between Ukraine and Russia. Right. And that meant, of course, hardly anyone ever heard of Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine, which is considered the worst of Stalin's genocides. He, of course, committed several. So I wanted to make a film, a Schindler's List like film that that honored millions of uh, Ukrainians that suffered under Stalin. And it was just a crazy college dream. I was mostly procrastinating working on it in college. I told my friends I'm going to do this. They're all so proud of me. I had no idea how I was going to do this. And it just took a, a very, very long time. And I stumbled upon my hero, Gareth Jones, when I was living in Ukraine in 2005. I moved there alone. I was inspired to do so because of Ukraine's Orange Revolution, which overthrew a corrupt election. And I remember being in this really seedy internet bar on Krishatik, surrounded by all these Turkish guys. <laughs> and like and like digging into these articles and, and, and one 
came up on um, this young forgotten Welshman by the name of Gareth Jones, who's absolutely brilliant. He spoke several languages fluently, Russian, French, German. Uh, he hustled his way onto a flight with the newly appointed chancellor of Germany. And for his next big story, he's going to take on Stalin. Immediately when I discovered uh, Gareth Jones in, in my research, I knew that he was going to be the hero. He was going to be the vehicle for which I told this heartbreaking horror story of Stalin's forced famine. So I, I wrote to his niece, Cyril Coley. She knew Gareth growing up. Uh, Gareth was her beloved uncle. So just like my grandfather was the world to me, Gareth Jones was the world to little Cyril as a, as a young girl. I flew to London and I met her and I interviewed her and I stayed in touch. And then years later, her son, Nigel, was extremely helpful with, with research and helping bring this world alive. And I, I did a road trip with Nigel, Gareth Jones's great nephew, through Wales and visited Upper Iswith, the university where he went to school and where his archive is. is. And I went through his diaries and his letters. And, and it was just extraordinary. This, this Gareth Jones, who I had on a pedestal, became flesh and blood to me when I was reading his letters home, telling his parents, get off my back, stop telling me what to do with my life and settle down and get a normal, boring job. Don't you want a son that goes out into the world and does all these exciting things? And that was the same message I was giving my parents who were freaking out over my totally unrealistic film project. What is what is our kid trying to do here? Like she's struggling like be a struggling filmmaker. She should go get a corporate job somewhere and be safe and stable. So that's really when I found my in in telling this story in a in a way that I could relate to, because otherwise he would have just been this God to me for so long. And I think I do have to say, it's been extraordinary in terms of my experience with you and others who were documenting Ukraine's revolution in real time and Putin's invasion of Ukraine that followed. And then the assassination of Boris Nemtsov and all these horrific events that just seemed to escalate. And then, of course, we get the big culmination of that, I guess you could say, with Putin helping Trump come to power in 2016. All those years when all those events were happening, I was working on the screenplay for Mr. Jones, and I was just shocked by how much the events of the Kremlin's information war, useful idiots in the West, a failure by the New York Times to not give us the full picture, full context, and so forth how much of it history was repeating. And, and that was all that all the energy was going into the screenplay. And one layer of the film, Mr. Jones, is you have George Orwell woven throughout as sort of a Greek chorus, writing the words of Animal Farm that narrates the young man's journey. And part of the reason why Orwell made into the script, well, there are real life historical connections between Garrett, the real Gareth Jones and the real George Orwell. But part of it was because of my experiences with you and others, was one thing I saw in terms of combating the Kremlin's disinformation war was it takes a chain of people to get the truth out. And so I saw how, you know, or Orwell, who had never stepped foot in the Soviet Union, he depended on truthful reporting from brave journalists like Gareth Jones. And so a lot of that connection, that was in, that was in tribute to you and so many others that risked so much to be early on the truth and to be relentless in pursuit of the truth. I don't know what to say to that. I mean, I've, well, I've been wanting to tell you for a long time. And I told you on your show. <laughs> well, that, I, yeah, I'm, I'm flattered. I'm also um, skeptical. and I, I would have to push back on uh, any comparison between myself and, and George Orwell. Well, I didn't make that comparison. Oh, so good. OK. So <laughs> now I've got ahead of my skis and I've. Yeah. yeah. To about. No, no, I, I understand what you, you mean. And we've had conversations, searching conversations about this. 
you had mentioned the New York Times, and I, I alluded to kind of the failure of establishment press to, or the establishment press to, to get at the truth. One of the central characters, and I suppose the villain, central villain in your film is Walter Durante, the notorious New York Times Moscow correspondent who won a Pulitzer Prize for churning out lies and saying- In 1932, yeah. when Stalin's famine and it was already in motion. Right. I mean, this is the classic case of the access- besotted journalist who doesn't really venture out beyond the capital is sort of spoon fed his talking points or his essentially his stories by government officials doesn't bother to do any independent investigation or is even just ideologically inclined to dispel rumors or credible bits and bobs of the truth because for whatever reason right he is considers himself the only true gatekeeper of what is happening in Russia or in the Soviet Union. He is perhaps a fellow traveler and quite likes the system being constructed. And your film does something which is unusual for films set in this era, which is it shows Moscow, at least for Western expats and correspondents from around the world, as sort of like a flesh pot, right? I mean, there's that famous scene in Durante's apartment where he's kind of strolling around half naked. It almost looks orgiastic. Uh, you don't associate 1930 somewhat in Moscow with, um, you know, ravishing sex parties and free-flowing alcohol and all the rest of it. I mean, it seems like the ecosystem that was constructed or that was allowed to be built by Stalin for Westerners coming to the Soviet Union at that time was designed to give them a completely false and fantastical understanding of what was taking place in the rest of the country. They were very much in their own bubble. And here comes Mr. Jones saying, I want to go, you know, and explore and I want to I want to chase up some of these rumors of absolute devastation, famine, and sort of almost biblical level death. And they're all telling him, oh, you know, you silly boy, why don't you just hang out here with us and, you know, file your copy in the usual way. And this is how you work your way up the ladder. This is a real critique of journalism, not just of Stalinist terror. We see a lot of the same things happening today in terms of even people at really credible, reliable, or supposedly reliable news organizations, not getting the story right, but not getting the story right, not for customary notions of human error, but because they seem to be acting in bad faith. Yeah. So it's there's a kind of timelessness to your film. What do you hope? Obviously, you talked a little bit about the A to Z while you were working on this, things in our own lives started to get worse and worse and worse and have more you know, relevance to the film. I can also imagine the European audiences for this who probably re relate to it more passionately than an American audience because they're closer to in time and place to the Holodomor. I mean, what was the response to what's happening in the continent in terms of, I mean, obviously the Russian state news apparatuses are much more pronounced. You know, you have the proliferation of Kremlin friendly politicians from Germany to Hungary. Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2, all the rest of it. Direct parallel, yeah. Yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about, because I know that this film, I think, didn't it debut in Europe before it came? Yeah, yeah. So we premiered at the Berlin Film Festival in February 2019. And I can tell you, as somebody that produced this in a very indie fashion, it, when I approached Agnieszka Holland with the script, it was just me in a screenplay. And if she said... Who's the director? Who's the director? And she's she did Europa Europa, the story of a Jewish boy who hides out in Hitler's youth. She directed The Secret Garden. I met her through the historian Timothy Snyder. If Agnieszka Holland said no, I don't know 
what I would have done. I was about to give up on the project. It had been a million years. I was bringing great shame to my family, trying to pursue this for so long. And I stalled in my own career. So I saw other journalists that I started in the industry with shoot up to editor of The Atlantic and other places. And meanwhile, I was juggling freelancer jobs and corporate writing gigs and other things just to have that flexibility to work on this. So Agnieszka was the end of the line for me in a lot of ways. And I'm and it was just a miracle that she said yes. And she said yes right away because this was her story as well. Her parents were both journalists. Agnieszka grew up in Soviet-occupied Poland and her father's official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation. So she had a lot to say with this film and she latched on right away and she moved heaven and earth to make it happen. Yeah. We struggled for money. We struggled for cast. All the typical icebergs you have to navigate as an independent filmmaker. And so the irony was that when we showed up at the Berlinale, we were one of the hot films. And everybody treated us almost like Hillary Clinton in 2016. Like we had an inevitability problem. Like everyone just thought we're like the, you know, they were like <laughs> this weird um, problem about being that buzzed about films. Like everybody's, you're that bitch everyone's talking about, you know? <laughs> and our press screenings were packed. Our press conference was packed. I was ready at the press conference for a Kremlin troll to stand up in the audience. Anywhere, I'd, you know, you've had this experience too, I'm sure, where we would go off and give talks in places and there'd always be that Kremlin plant in the audience that would just stand up and start shooting propaganda at you to try to discredit you. I was anticipating that at the Berlin Al. Instead, we got the most thoughtful questions, including from Russian independent journalists. So that was so heartwarming. One Russian-speaking uh, Ukrainian journalist based in Berlin watched the film three times during the Berlin Film Festival. She interviewed me for like, I think, two hours and she'd read every review. She basically put me through like a grad school level class on my own film. It was really heartwarming to see like the emotions that it provoked in people because it is a provocative film. Like we go there, we take these shots right. against establishment media, against establishment business. There is a real scene taken from history of Walter Duranti being cheered in the Waldorf Astoria ballroom because he's just brokered a, a big peace deal between the Soviet Union and FDR's government. So right, this happens in 1933. So Stalin gets away with mass murdering millions and he gets awarded for it. Right. And so this is very much like Nord Stream 2 today. And so the, the European press jumped on it. They loved it. They, there was a lot of parallels to today, obviously. The American press was not as kind. And that was sort of depressing because I'm an American and I'm based here. And it's sort of sad to see. Not as kind because they had problems with the style of the film or the content of the film. Well, I think even the critical American reviews were still very thoughtful in how they treated the, the genocide famine. So I love that. Even if a review was critical of the of the art, of the work itself, if they went into a deep dive on the history, I was grateful because the whole point of this project was to raise awareness. So it wasn't that big of a problem in my in my view. But it was very much a European film made by a European master, and that's Agnieszka Holland. And she had a lot of fun making it. She's someone that's done a lot of TV in recent years. She's been um, directing episodes of House of Cards, The Affair, Rosemary's Baby. So for her to have total freedom, because we had total freedom, it was just me, Agnieszka, and the actors working on the script right before shooting scenes. So that was 
very common throughout the whole process. And I think she really just, she just went for it in a very big way and just saying what she wanted to say. And it was a very heartfelt work. And what she ultimately produced was a requiem. And I think it's a testament, it's a monument that she built. And I'm extremely grateful for that. But it's obviously a challenging film. I mean, there's cannibals. Right. And that was representative of so many people being turned to cannibalism because that is part of the casualty of being slowly starved to death. You go mad. It's a painful, excruciating way to die. You lose your mind in the process. And many people turn to cannibalism. And so there is a scene that represents that that was very hard for some people. You know, it's it's so interesting because just before I switched on Zoom to have this conversation, I was reading an essay by a colleague of mine who's done this long 4,500 word piece on the deployment of sarin gas in Ghouta, Damascus in 2013. You know, one of the worst atrocities of the 21st century killed 1,400 plus people. And you, you switch on social media today. And I mean, the contortions that people both on the right and the left undergo to pretend this never happened, that it was either staged or that the attack was waged by the very victims of it. You know, atrocity denial, war crime, apologetics, these are still things that are sadly with us. I mean, you see what's happening in China. And again, I'm seeing even mainstream news outlets say, well, we wouldn't go so far as to call it a genocide, but dot, dot, dot. And, you know, when you didn't have things like Bellingcat. You didn't have open source forensics that could be based on satellite footage or uploaded YouTube videos or images to the internet. You had to go out like Gareth Jones did and report, risk your life. And then even then, it was your word against the chorus, right? And you could be castigated as a liar or just you know dismissed as, as he was. It's a strange kind of paradox because it's both more difficult to deny the truth today and yet far easier to claim that there is no such thing as truth or that these facts have been manufactured. I mean, the proliferation of, I mean, we call it disinformation, we call it fake news, but just lies, really, both little and big, seem to be increasing rather than decreasing with the availability for all people to have access to credible forms of of information. And you could almost do a sequel to this movie based on, I mean, hell, things that you and I have both reported on and seen from 2014, to certainly what's taken place in Syria, to now what's taken place in a province in China. What do you think has happened from the 20th century to the 21st? Because clearly, those who were ideologues of Marxism-Leninism, they're few and far between these days. Instead, it's, there seems to be something else in the water and the ether fomenting these conspiracy theories and, and making them attractive to people from all kind of political backgrounds. Because I can only imagine like seeing a Ukrainian terror famine today perpetrated, assuming the government of Ukraine had been overthrown or it was occupied by Russia. The absolute denialism that we, you and I would look at on Twitter, Facebook, social media, it would be the same, wouldn't it? Oh, it's, it's happening in real time with Venezuela, with the famine in Venezuela. Of course, you have a refugee crisis there, which is nearly as large as the one is in Syria. And you have these hipster kids with podcasts in Brooklyn who are denying and, and calling anybody that takes on the Venezuelan regime as CIA, right. <laughs> as, you know, a neoliberal. So it's happening. Right. It's, I always find it ironic. It's, you know, the very people who use the word McCarthyism to describe those of us who are critical of Russia or try to expose Russian state crimes and atrocities are the first people to accuse their enemies of being MI6, CIA, State Department. We're Illuminati. Right. We've been Illuminati all this time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Um, so, yeah, we're living several versions of Mr. Jones, and it just comes down to the same factors, blood money 
corruption, greed, and people in positions of power and people not in positions of power, people in the audience, people on Twitter, treating global affairs like a chessboard. There's winners and losers. I've seen that in regards to Ukraine, where Ukrainians don't have their own autonomy. They're just a tool, right. uh, a buffer state between Russia and U.S. And meanwhile, Ukrainians themselves are saying, please, like, get us out of this corruption. Like, let, we want to live like, like Western Europeans do. And this is a growth industry. You know, you can make a lot of money creating a kind of Infowars style YouTube chat channel or a podcast in which you claim, you know, Syrian children are crisis actors. What happened in Kyiv in 2014 was a fascist junta. I mean, we've even seen foreign affairs infiltrate the domestic political sphere in the form of Donald Trump's first impeachment, right? How much disinformation, how much crap about Ukraine got kind of retailed in mainstream news organizations simply because, you know, it was in the service of some party political agenda, whether pro-Trump, anti-Trump, whatever. This is something that, that I sort of grapple with all the time. In the absence of a compelling, seductive ideology, which Marxism-Leninism was for you know, successive generations of intellectuals, we have almost this kind of weird pastiche or hodgepodge. You know, you've got the alt-right, the so-called dirtbag left, people who are just inclined to disbelieve anything that has been kind of sanctified by the American government. Um, by dint of Pompeo and Blinken using the word genocide to refer to the plight of the Uyghurs in China, it's therefore a conspiracy theory, and we must push back against it and get to the real truth of what's happening. There has been no real progress in terms of, you know, human epistemology, or at least not, you would think, like, there are more democracies today than there were in 1932. And yet we're not, we're not all aligned in our understanding of how the world works. The, f the facts. <laughs> There's no agreed upon set of facts, it seems. Yeah, I think it's complicated by the fact that, as we see in the film, journalism is a peer pressure industry. Your success as a journalist, certainly a freelance journalist, depends on your relationships. You have to have really strong relationships with editors in order to get assignments in hired places. And so that's what we see in the film. And that's what goes on today. And that's why to be an independent journalist, especially a freelancer, you're all, you're financially vulnerable, you're vulnerable. And so to, to stick your neck out and say, here's what's going on, and then to have a pile on of all these super cool journalists, you know, at their desks in New York City, all these at these at these fashionable outlets, it's hard. It creates its own version of self-censorship. So I don't think even right. if you talk about democracies versus authoritarianism, like we have our own pressures functioning in our jobs as, as journalists in a democracy. And, and it's that. And one thing that doesn't get talked enough about, because I, I think because there's so much shame involved, is um, the decline of newsroom jobs, the decline of journalism jobs. And investigative units are some of the first uh, ones to go when the hedge funds come in and take over um, an outlet. And then there's this weird divide that I've witnessed over the years, uh, living in New York, working in media in New York, between the journalists that are uh, that do uh, have jobs and those that are that that don't. I've seen a, a lot of incredible journalists get pushed into other industries like PR, corporate writing, and, and so forth. And those who are still holding on to working in media, yeah, there's just this weird blind spot they had. They don't see themselves as lucky or privileged or you know um, having the right connections. They, they they think, well, what's what's the problem? I don't see why people. You know, I've seen that. I've seen a disconnect, and I think that's a big part of it too. Is people's reluctance to to go there, to say what needs to be said, to point out um, some uncomfortable 
And I think obviously uh, the problems that are put on display in Mr. Jones or the disinformation, it's all been exploded exponentially by big tech and big tech has no problem raking in all that blood money for spewing out all this disinformation. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, I see him as a threat to not only our our democracy here at home, but around the world, as much as Paul Manafort, Putin's operative in Ukraine. The issues presented in Mr. Jones have unfortunately become a lot more complicated because of big tech. But the one thing I do want people to take away from the film is a recognition that jobs like media, they come with a lot of peer pressure, which in turn come with and economic pressures, which in turn comes with self-censorship, whether you're in a democracy or dictatorship. No, I mean, one of the more dire reckonings I think we've had to make in the 21st century is the this early futurist belief that technology was going to be this force for emancipation and the broadening of one's mind. And as I said earlier, people would have access to facts and therefore there would be more consensus about important things, you know, climate change, war crimes, et cetera. It's not true. You know, one of my favorite quotations in the last, I guess, 10 years was, uh, has been Alexander Hertzen's line that, you know, what I fear most, and he was talking specifically about Russia quite presciently, is Genghis Khan with a telegraph, right? Dictators and bad guys have the same access to and the same resources, in fact, more so than the grassroots Democrats and the civil society actors we would want to align with and support. You know, they adapt too to technological innovation. They know how to game Facebook. They know how to use Twitter to their advantage. I mean, whether you're dealing with the Saudis and their so-called flies who swarm any attempt to expose MBS's crimes and the murder of Khashoggi, or God, how many books have been written on the Russian troll farm headed by Mr. Uh, Prigozhin. And- I want to write a sitcom like The Office placed in a Russian troll farm. <laughs> Quite good, I think, and timely. We were talking a little bit about um, the American reception to Mr. Jones earlier. And I mean, obviously, the Europeans have more invested in because this is essentially a work of European history and also historiography, right? The bad history that was done in real time. What do you think motivated more critical analysis of the film by an American audience? Do you see this as an attempt by, say, Soviet historical revisionists? Because obviously, there's a school of thinking that suggests, well, you know, yes, of course, Stalin committed atrocities. But he really wasn't all that bad. And he did do things like usher in industrialization and, you know, built the, the, the Moscow metro. And, you know, you, you see bits and bobs of this kind of percolating around these days. I mean, what, what do you think is behind? Well, if we boil it down to the U.S. response being largely mixed, there was a huge divide between the East Coast and the West Coast. Oh, interesting. The East Coast largely loved it. There was a glowing review by the New York Times. The New Yorker provided a thought full coverage, uh, Washington Post and others, and The Economist, which is British. But but so largely the East Coast had a lot to say about Mr. Jones. The West Coast was a bit more, I think, focused on the filmmaking, which is in a very European style. Right. And I think there was expectation. As I said, we went into the Berlin Film Festival as one of the buzzed about films. And I think people were expecting to see the next imitation game, sort of like a slick, polished package. And instead, they got Agnieszka Holland sticking a middle finger out of the world's corruption. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very angry film. Right. And that's very much on display. Like we 
go there. We take all these hits that that it. And you don't. I mean, like Durante does not come across as a particularly complicated or you know emotionally riven figure. He's just kind of a sleazebag. Right. And I have to say, Peter Sarsgaard, who is a beautiful actor, just so thoughtful and just so sensitive. He gave such a generous portrayal of Durante. When I spent all these years researching Durante, the more I discovered about him, the more I hated him. The guy was just disgusting. As you see in the film, he had a maid and had a child with this maid. And we included that to give some sympathy, to to provide some sympathy. But what happens in real life is Durante gets the hell out of Moscow when the game is up, where, you know, Gareth Jones comes to town, blows the lid off this thing. And this fancy pack of Western reporters, they know that their time is up. And so one by one, they start leaving. And one Eugene Lyons, who wrote for United Press International, he even comes out the tell-all, A Simon and Utopia, where an entire chapter is called something like The Western Press Conceals a Famine. And it's all about what they did to Gareth Jones, how they banded together with the Soviet censor and, and made uh, an agreement that they would go back to their newspapers and say Gareth Jones is lying in exchange for access to the Soviet regime. So the truth was coming out. And so when, when it was Durante's time to get the hell out, he left his child and mistress behind. And one of his friends had a scramble to, to support them because Rachi just, you know, didn't care. He did not care. And in terms of the big why, like why was he the way he was? I mean, this is a guy who engaged, who participated in the satanic black magic orgies of 1920s Paris with Aleister Crawley, who inspired the Rolling Stones' rights and for the Devil. Uh, he shared a lover with Crawley. In Moscow, according to his biographer, Sally Taylor, he would go to these sex orgies there was one party he went to where a, a young Russian girl and a young Russian boy were bricked up inside a wall. And everyone thought that was so funny. So he was just a heinous, heinous human being. And I think Peter Sarsgaard was incredibly generous to him. And Peter on set kept acting as Durante's lawyer and saying, well, in Durante's mind, he has to promote the regime. He has to write what the Soviets and the Kremlin, you know, what the Kremlin wants to once because if he doesn't, he's going to lose access and access is going to provide a window to what's going on here. And we've got to protect that access. And, and so um, Peter very much brought a softness to Durante, but where the real Durante was just a hedonistic slime ball who enjoyed living large, who enjoyed being the king of this far flung outpost. And he enjoyed going to New York City. He loved New York City and regaling all the literati of New York at the Gawkin Roundtable with his exotic stories of life in Moscow and hosting all of these figure, all these celebrities of his day when they would come to Moscow. And so, uh, like I said earlier, it's like pay attention to the peer pressure in the industry. If Walter Durante, the great Walter Durante, who I had a great time with at this party, he's so witty. I was at a dinner party with him. We got drunk. We had a good time. If he's saying everything's okay over there, why would I doubt that? So peer pressure is a big factor of why we get the information that we do. And it's important for people to start recognizing that in terms of how they dissect the news. Yeah. No, you don't want to be chucked out of the country you're meant to cover because that's going to affect your professional fortune. You don't want to be unhirable. Uh, you, you want to make sure that you keep that flow of, of assignments coming to you and that you're considered a reliable reporter and that, you know, you're not going to go off on a limb and report something that might be too dangerous. And do you see, well, we talked a little bit about sort of the parallels with today, but, you know, things aren't quite as doctrinaire. I mean, you know, you, you will see really good reporting coming out of Moscow today by Western correspondents. 
even more so, frankly, by independent Russian journalists. You know, I mean, look at what The Insider is doing. Look at what Dozhd is doing, uh, covering the Navalny protests and so on. I suppose, you know, in a weird way, things have become a little more difficult to parse. And perhaps that's just a function of living in real time, as opposed to looking back 80, 90 years and judging actors by historical consensus or whatever's left of historical consensus. I mean, in at the time, and, you know, you, you have Orwell in this film. I don't think, did Orwell ever meet Jones or was that sort of cinematic? No, but they shared the same literary agent. Right. And I know from having a literary agent that got me nothing except for introductions to other writers. Right. That it's a very social job to be a literary agent. And so they they were both represented by Leonard Moore. They're roughly the same age. We meet Gareth Jones when he embarks on this big journey trying to interview Stalin. And at that same moment, Orwell publishes his first book as George Orwell, Down and Out in Paris and London, which is something, a topic that Gareth Jones certainly would have been interested about because he had traveled New York City and what, you know, looked at the Hoovervilles, the shanty towns of the Great Depression. So spiritually, certainly they were very much cut from the same cloth, both fiercely independent, anti-conformist, brilliant, cared about the world, cared about human rights, had some built-in empathy detector, like they cared about other people. Orwell's, I, I think his great insight was he was always good at upending or complicating his own prejudices, right? I mean, this is somebody who could have very easily become a lockstep communist, but had the curiosity and the, the skepticism to investigate what communism was based on sources such as Jones. I mean, essentially debunked the big lie. I mean, his book about Spain, where he did set foot and he fought on the side of the Republicans. This is by no means a peon to, you know, even the Trotskyist cause. He even admits, look, you know, the, the only game in town was the communist brigades and I would have happily fought with them, you know, for Barcelona. But here is what was taking place. Here was the Soviet uh, yoke that was placed upon these international volunteers such as myself. And that's why I ended up joining Boom. So it was a very nuanced and subtle rendering of reportage in real time. And of course, you know, journalism is considered the first draft of history. So if you can get it right out of the gate, that's a pretty big testament. Um, yeah. So in terms of uh, George Orwell being in Mr. Jones, as I mentioned before, there's one of the journalists we see in Moscow, Eugene Lyons, who wrote for United Press International, who came out with the big tell-all, Assignment of Utopia, which has the chapter, The Western Press Conceals a Famine, about what they did to Gareth Jones. Orwell reviewed that book. And Orwell's review of that book reads like it's about Putin's Russia today. He talks about the terrorism and the media's, the self-censorship, the propaganda, all of it. And what was really interesting about that Orwell angle is in line with the theme that we've been talking about is... Um, one of the reasons why Orwell ended up in the script was because um, I was reading in, in Christopher Hitchens' introduction to Animal Farm, just a mention, passing mention, that Orwell struggled for years to get Animal Farm published, and somehow a copy ended up in the hands of Ukrainian refugees that immediately understood what he's trying to say with the book. It was their story. Right. And I thought that it was so beautiful. So I wove Orwell into the script because you know, Gareth Jones gets murdered under mysterious circumstances the day before his 30th birthday, where Bronte goes on to live a long life and die peacefully in Florida. I showed Orwell as sort of, you know, picking up where Gareth leaves off. Amazingly, you know, inspired by the story of Orwell and the refugees and, and putting Orwell in the script, I discovered that my own family, when they immigrated from a, a refugee camp, a World War II refugee camp uh, to New York City, they could only take what they could carry. And one of the things they took with them was a bootleg copy of Animal Farm translated into Ukrainian, which had been produced with Orwell's blessing. And as part of this book, Orwell provided a preface for the Ukrainians where he wrote, 
this long personal story of his life and why he wrote Animal Farm. And he talks about how he wanted to separate the monster Stalin from the cause of socialism. Right. And so that's one of the things that people on the left who care about progressive values and ideals have to really be staunchly anti-tanky, have to be staunch, you stop yeah, with. You see it all the time. I mean, the most popular podcasts and shows, it's almost this kind of sniveling, ironic appraisal of Stalinism where, you know, nothing really matters. And again, if it cuts against the conventional wisdom or the received wisdom, it must be good. And so therefore, Stalinism wasn't so bad. You know, if you were thrown into the gulag, you probably did something to deserve it. You see this all over social media. And it's imperialist because Stalin grew an empire. He managed an empire. Sure. So anybody that is defending Stalin is, is being imperialist. And you know what's what's so interesting too? I mean, I suppose the word that we haven't used, which we should in, in the absence of ideology, because I don't really see a coherent ideology here. I see a lot of, you know, cosplay socialism by trust fund kids and Exactly. But narrative. Seamus Milne, <laughs> who ran labor into the ground. Yeah. And in that case, though, I, I do see a coherent ideology because he's old enough to have been kind of properly indoctrinated in the late 60s and 70s. I mean, one of his university classmates told me that uh, you know, back in the day we used to say Seamus was so Stalinist he had snow on his boots. Little has changed there. Although him making alliance with kind of the Trotskyist contingent of British politics is quite funny and ironic as well. But no, I think narrative is the word I see used a lot. And I suppose this is kind of an inheritance from academic jargon. But this is the thing, right? Media does not have the resources, the time, or frankly, the respect for its audiences to really explain that which is complicated, nuanced, difficult, morally fraught. So it has to be a narrative, right? The proliferation of ISIS means that Bashar al-Assad is fighting against terrorism. Full stop. Narrative. Not true, but narrative. The reason that Russia felt so intimidated that it had to invade Crimea and occupy the Ukrainian peninsula and then ultimately annex it was because NATO has been expanding eastward and enervating the Russian government. And, you know, Bill Clinton gave his word to Boris Yeltsin that this would never happen. But narrative, right? All of these things, and it doesn't matter, you know, facts that complicate or that kind of gray the picture for people, they don't really matter anymore. And you see this just across the board, you know, and, and what's, what's, what's interesting, because you, you bring up Orwell and Animal Farm, and the reason Animal Farm didn't get published Sooner, Faber and Faber had the book, and it was T.S. Eliot, a conservative poet, celebrated literary figure, by no means a Stalinist, who rejected it on the grounds that it was being too unkind to the Soviets who had helped us in World War II. There was another tidy little narrative where even the American, and in this case, I guess the Anglo-American, because he by this point had reinvented himself as an Englishman, the American Anglo-American right did not want anything published or to come out that was critical or skeptical of the Soviet experiment because it was seen as being ungrateful. And even though, I mean, World War II officially starts with two invasions. The Soviets and the Nazis started World War II by chopping up Poland. Yeah. Correct. And the Hitler-Stalin pact meant that the Soviets were producing armaments and giving their natural resources to Hitler for his Anschluss throughout Europe. And to this day, I mean, you check out any Russian embassy Twitter account, you check out the tanky kind of appraisal of 20th century history, and it was the Soviet Union smashed Nazism. And completely elided from the picture is all of the preceding episodes in which, no, Stalin courted an alliance with Hitler quite assiduously. I mean, in, in my book, I'm, I have a chapter on Walter Kravitsky, who was a, he, he had been a GRU officer who was then seconded to the NKVD in like 1933, ultimately defects and wrote a book 
in Stalin's secret service in which he, based on real-time conversations he was having with members of the Politburo, members of the Soviet security services, said, look, you know, since the night of long knives, when Hitler purged all of his enemies and really consolidated his power, Stalin, for lack of a better term, and this is my own phrase, not Kravitsky's, had a real hard on for the Nazi leader. He's like, this is a guy who can get things done. What can I learn from him? I want to make a deal with him. And despite all of the Soviet sort of posturing and propaganda that, you know, this was communist state was going to stand up and be a bulwark against fascism, behind the scenes, the diplomacy set told a different story. And it was Hitler who kept rebuffing Stalin until ultimately for his own strategic purposes said, sure, let's make a deal. And then I'll betray you later. Again, narrative. Narrative trumps the complicated, messy truth. Perception versus reality. Right. Final publisher. So the Secker and Warburg that finally put out Animal Farm, the wife of one of the publishers said, how dare you publish this book, especially after the Soviets saved us. So they agreed to delay until the war was officially over. Mm. And again, it has nothing to do with the historical or empirical rigor of the book. Right. It has to do with being polite to somebody who might be just as bad a perpetrator as the the people you've just vanquished. And you see that today with Putin. You see him, you know, Macron doing co-statements with Putin, a mass murdering dictator. Oh, for sure. So it's ongoing. Mr. Jones is ongoing, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, Andrea, I mean, as always, it's uh, my favorite kind of conversations are the ones I have with my friends that I take place offline and then I turn them online. So this has been one of those. It's great to have you on. Congrats with all the success for the film. I hope it wins a bunch more awards. I know it's won many already. And we should have you back to talk about fake news, disinformation, and uh, the war against convenient narratives in future. Definitely. Okay. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. Thanks very much. 